You're listening to episode number 180. Wow, 180 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. This is Sean Devine. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by Josh Smith. Hey, Josh. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good. So I'm recording this uh, on the road from my from my mother-in-law's house in her attic, which it seems like a, a destined to be a problem uh, <laughs> setup, but <laughs> it sounds okay. So, yeah. uh, where, where's your mother-in-law at? Uh, she's downstairs. Or do no, you mean- no, I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Where in the world? <laughs> yes. No, where in the world is outside of Detroit? So my, this is a, a fun story. So when I, you know, when you, when you live somewhere, you describe where you're from in like two specific terms, if you're outside of that area. So I met yes. my wife and uh, she used to say that she was from Allen Park, Michigan. And someone would say, oh, like near Detroit. She's like, well, kind of near Detroit. And, uh, <laughs> and it's six miles away. And I'm like, I, I think... <laughs> I don't think there's anything that's six miles from a big city that doesn't count as that city if you're talking to anyone but the mayor of the small town that you're from. Right, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, I guess the border is maybe 500 meters from where we currently stand. So (laughs) that's basically it. So anyways, yes, I'm in Detroit or just outside of Detroit. Nice. How's the weather there? Cold and lousy. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm about to go back to Maryland and it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. All right, so so let's get into this. I uh, this is my favorite type of uh, episode because you were recommended highly by a guy that I know as someone that would be great on the podcast. So you know, I'm I'm uh, trusting him. And yeah, uh, well, let's hope Rigel was right about that. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, I last week started to talk about Ember more on the the Rails podcast, and I'm going to keep going on that for a while and. Uh, Rigel, I think, mentioned uh, that that you would be a good guy to talk about that sort of joint topic. So we went back and forth by email, and in particular, what I'm interested in talking about, at least for the beginning, is is this choice about whether or not you should architect an application to have a a server component, let's just say a Rails app for this conversation, and then separate client applications, say a web application or iPhone or integration or whatever, or if, if some other hybrid or completely different architecture is the right, right choice and, and when each of those would be the right call. So, uh, why don't we jump right into that? What's your take? Have you you been thinking about that topic lately also? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, currently am working on a, uh, uh, Ember app that is my own personal side project. Um, and then I also have an Ember app that I'm working on for a client. And in fact, both of them have uh, separate Rails APIs. Um, so, you know, I've gone down that path of trying to make the decision point. The first decision had to happen for my personal side project, which uh, is where I learned really everything that I needed to learn about Ember. Um, you could say that I'd learned Ember previously, but until you get into the guts of it and are actually building something that is going to be in front of real people um, trying to make you money, then that is a completely different situation. So uh, I think the the easier um, question to answer, at least uh, to begin with, is maybe about the two domains. So when do you have an Ember app uh, separated from your server-side app? Um, I think the answer to that from my perspective is always. I cannot imagine a reason why you would not separate them. Um, yeah, and- so, so let's talk about that too. And, and sure. this does not make for a good podcast banter because we're going to agree. But <laughs> I have come to the this, the same opinion over the last maybe, 
I don't know, maybe about three months where I can't see a case where it's not worth taking the call it the cost up front to separate them. Like I can't see where, where that's not the right situation or right decision anymore. Right. I mean, Ember CLI is about to be a first class citizen um, in Ember itself. I don't think anybody should build an Ember application without building an Ember CLI application. Um, and so for those who aren't familiar, Ember CLI is a CLI interface for building an Ember app. I mean, it's pretty much just like the Rails command line application for building a Rails app. Um, why wasn't that a thing before? Well, I mean, Ember had a lot of other work to do uh, prior to getting to that point. And, um, and I think Ember so- CLI is more, I mean, just to give an intro to people because we didn't talk about it last episode. I think CLI is, I I think I would add what what you just said, which is a series of um, generators from the Rails world that you can run. And they're also called the same thing in Ember CLI that you can run from your terminal to build things, but also a set of build tools that can help in your workflow around deployment and call it configuring different environments, which I suppose... Maybe some of that was covered without Ember CLI, but a lot of those features, at least as far as I can tell, are part of Ember CLI. Do you think that's accurate? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's just it's a further solidifying convention over configuration. Um, I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, we, so I mean, our deployment process for uh, the side project is very um, intense. I mean, we brought them deploying to a Heroku server, and I've got uh, completely different. Um, environmental variables for the production side of things, obviously, than I do for development. Um, I've got Stripe built in there. So I've got like a Stripe test key for in development, a Stripe uh, uh, production key for production. Um, we're trying to push assets up to S3. I mean, there's a whole build pipeline that is just taken care of by Ember CLI, which is fantastic. So I should ask you, what do you want to promote the side project or is it something not to promote? Uh, Sure, no, I think people can go and check it out. It's uh, cookacademy.com. Um, so that is, uh, I, I, we're basically teaching people how to cook um, online, which uh, it's, you can kind of think of it as maybe like treehouse for cooking. Um, I love so, it. So I, t- I took a quick look after uh, we met on Twitter, and uh, it's very nice. Really nice thank job. You. Yeah, I like Appreciate it. Quite a bit. it. So, so let, let's sort of rewind a little bit, and yeah, we both said the same thing, which is that at this point we can't see a situation where it wouldn't make sense to separate the the call it the server from from the client. But not everyone agrees with that. Sure. So, why don't we sort of slow that part of the conversation down and go through the best arguments for and against making this decision, just so that those that you know are in agreement, you know, we can we can talk about why we think that, and those that maybe aren't in agreement, we at least are airing that point of view. Sure, um, I I think the the strongest argument uh, against is you are mixing two domains together. You are mixing the client and the server into the uh, the same bucket, and you have to think about both of them together. And that's, I think it's much easier to switch context when you're talking about it as a completely different project. If it's in a different repository, and it is the client, and it's going to interact with the server, and you can essentially treat it as a separate service, it is much easier to to separate it in your mind. At least it is for me. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think that the only time where keeping them as one project is superior is during the first 
leg, call it the first couple few months of the existence of the, the joint client that, right. that during that first call it, you know, handful of sprints, I do think that the client, if you were to like to side by side projects, like let's say you did one as a split ember rails project and I did one where they were joined together. I bet I would, and let's say we were, you know, comparable in skills. I think I would go out to a lead early, you know, right. and that I maybe could sustain that lead for, you know, if we were working full time, maybe six weeks, maybe eight weeks, somewhere in there. And then from, from six or eight weeks until the end of time, I would get destroyed. <laughs> right. So I, I don't I, know, like, unless yeah, I, you're, unless I, you're optimizing for that kind of short window where you really don't care about anything beyond that, which is like never in any project I work on then you know that that's where i think that the the choice is sort of literally short-sighted right i, I don't think i disagree i think anymore with ember cli it is probably i think that that time span might actually be a little shorter than that six weeks that you mentioned um but uh you know if you're if you're really only doing something that is going to sit there never need to be maintained and uh, you and I are just doing like a weekend hack, then sure, go and throw it into the server, put it in your asset pipeline, do whatever you want to do. But um, I can't imagine any other uh, approach um, where that makes sense. Yeah, and if, if if it is a weekend project or an experiment or whatever, then the choice doesn't matter much regardless anyhow. So right. like, p- pick whatever you want to and, and, uh, and go for it. I agree with you that the timeline's being compressed where you know the the single app would be in the lead so i think that the the number one well let me ask you what right now do you think is the single biggest kind of opportunity to reduce from whatever the current amount of time is where i would get the head start you know whether it's six weeks or four weeks or eight weeks or whatever what do you think what what do you think is the biggest lever to sort of shrink that advantage even to to an even smaller amount of time you know i think it's the ember add-ons that have been coming out and this is still a fairly recent development, um, but you know you've got the, for example, Tony Coco's Heroku Ember CLI build pack, and <laughs> that makes deploying to Heroku painless. Um, I have absolutely no issue with uh, deploying an Ember app any longer. Um, I think so. I haven't maybe, used it. Can you can you tell me a bit about it? Uh, sure. So it essentially has um, an Nginx. Uh, configuration file in it al- already um, with some nice uh, preset defaults. And in fact, um, there was just an amazing pull request recently that added uh, prerender.io um, service to it as well. So you can get um, a lot of this SEO prerendering uh, right out of the box. That you just have to put in your API token and then the rest of the Nginx configuration starts working. Um, but oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing, uh, especially for me where SEO really counts in the like recipe cooking skill world. Um, but it is uh, it is fantastic. You essentially um, deploy to it, you include that uh, Ember add-on in your uh, Ember CLI project, and you can deploy to Heroku right away. It uh, includes Node. Um, you're basically running an Express JS server and then all of your Ember app gets served up directly through Nginx. You can do proxying to your API as well. So, for example, all of the API requests, um, I've got, because these these apps are served uh, separately, you've got a Heroku Rails app, which runs on an API subdomain, 
and then you have the Ember app, which runs on either a naked domain or www. And the uh, the nginx conf will actually reroute all API requests that are sent to slash API to my API subdomain um, <laughs> from within the Ember app itself, which is amazing. Awesome. Yeah, so that would so, be on. So I hadn't used that add-on, but I agree that the sort of add-ons as a category includes a lot of the items that are the biggest wins. Like one of the ones that I'd add is uh, simple auth and and yes, <laughs> simple auth oauth too. Um, yep. So I'd say the when I l- kind of learned that workflow, it, it was not the easiest thing I've ever done because you know I was I was brand new to how I should do that number, and it just felt different. But considering what was going on, it really didn't take that long to figure out. And now that I know how to to uh, sort of integrate the an Ember app with my server f- with OAuth, it's so straightforward. Like really, yeah. like amazingly straightforward. Yeah, I, I, it was a lot of work for me to figure out the first time around. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, it, it took a lot of effort. Because I'm sitting here, I'm like, so I need to set up <laughs> an OAuth client. And I need to set up OAuth on the server. I'm like, wow. Like, the OAuth is just one of those things that I never wanted to deal with before. Um, like, let's find any library anywhere that is doing this thing so I don't have to touch it myself and understand what's happening. Right. Because it's, it's a tough thing to wrap your head around. Um, yeah, you know, all, all the round-trip calls that need to be made, uh, refresh tokens. And so if a library can handle the majority of that for me, I mean, I all I care about is getting the stuff done that I need to get done. I don't really care about the internals of how the OAuth application is working. As long as it works and my users are uh, able to get authenticated and nobody's <laughs> listening in on their requests, then we're good to go. Yeah, um, I feel I but, feel almost identically to, to how you just said about it. I think that the, the biggest thing that I had to add, aside from just sort of basic knowledge about how it all worked, was... Um, I think I had to add the password flow on my server the latest time, which I hadn't done. And I got tripped up a little bit with that because uh, um, in hindsight, it it shouldn't have tripped me up and I should have understood what was going on, but but I didn't. And uh, like you, it took me a little longer than I would have liked to figure it out. But once you've, you know, once you've slayed that dragon, it's not that bad. And the the add-ons make it, make the most difficult parts just so much easier. Absolutely. I, I actually, um, one thing I would recommend to people as well is that there is an Ember Simple Auth uh, device. Um, so if you are a device user um, and you don't want to have to deal with all the extra complexity that I dealt with, because I'm using Doorkeeper and Clearance in conjunction. And I think if I would have, ha- if I could go back and redo it, I probably would have started with device. Um, just because the the setup time would have been so much simpler, and device isn't that heavyweight that I should be complaining that much about it. Um, so I went device and and doorkeeper, which may be like the worst of of both worlds. <laughs> um, but but I got convinced, like for whatever reason, the last few months of my life, I've been cons- I've been um, increasingly focused on like what's good luck and bad luck to me. And I got convinced that not going OAuth and therefore Doorkeeper was bad luck. Like that, that I would regret it because it would reduce the option value of my server. Because what happens when I, you know, want to have an integration with something and then, like, I just got convinced it was a bad decision and I was going to bite the bullet and and deal with OAuth. But but that wasn't. I don't know that that was that well researched. It was sort of an emotional. See, I think. Call. <laughs> I think um, at the very least, don't write your own uh, authentication framework. Um, I right. don't, let me just say that because 
we did that with a client recently. Um, and that was probably like the single biggest regret that we've ever had in <laughs> writing software. I was gonna say, speaking um, of bad luck, <laughs> that's really bad luck. <laughs> I mean, we, we had to, um, we had a very interesting use case where we needed to have anonymous users and we needed to treat them as users so that they could do things that you would do when you're authenticated, but you wouldn't really, um, need that off step until like the very last moment. Um, <laughs> so we really couldn't find anything that worked the way that we wanted to. So we were just like, okay, let's just write our own client authentication library. <laughs> and uh, we've actually finally gone through the process of replacing that with device. Um, we have both of them running simultaneously right now, which uh, was just a huge pain to deal with. But um, please, please, please do not write your own authentication software. <laughs> Noted. So I've got, I think that my biggest current um, sort of leverage point for, for um, call it the Ember Rails combination is, is JSON API, like the standard for how the API um, interface should be designed. Right. I, I really am, I talked about this in, on the last episode, but I'm really into the promise of JSON API. And whether it's JSON API or another standard, I think is less so the point to me than a standard that I sort of buy into the philosophy of. Right. And it's not quite there yet. I think they're pretty close to 1.0. I am. I really don't care what the conventions are that they choose amongst the competitive sort of options <laughs> for the 1.0. I just want it to lock down. Right. Because as soon as it locks down, then there will be tons of benefits because many things will be able to assume what you can count on if the, if the API interface is a JSON API standard interface. And right now, that's just not quite the case. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's kind of funny to say uh, the JSON API standard since <laughs> it's so in flux right now. Um, but I, I agree that that's probably the way to go. Um, what are you using currently? Have you been using Rails API or uh, for the uh, Rails API is in the Gem Rails API or uh, right, like with Active Model Serializers or no. when you're doing? I I went um, on the latest one that I'm thinking about. I went. Uh, Rails, just, you know, a standard Rails app. Um, not because I have got a great reason for that. More like I I generally sort of believe that I, you know, I'm going to go base Rails and not not sort of try to strip things out that I don't honestly think are adding lots of overhead. And that may be a, a misinformed point of view, but whatever. That's, that, that, <laughs> that's my point of view. So uh, I went Rails and then uh, followed, sort of went through the JSON API standard and picked from the list of musts and mays and shoulds on that spec and picked the particular flavor that I was going to do and then wrote a series of helpers to help render the the resources. But but basically went with the JSON API where links are, where, where I don't have any objects sideloaded yet, uh, where the links are objects that have both the ID or IDs plus the href plus the type of the object gotcha. as the standard. And, and it went well. Like I'm super, super happy with that design. I'm just anxious for the sort of community and even me, I guess, my tooling and the community's tooling to sort of calcify a little bit around a 1.0 standard on JSON, JSON API that it can count on. Yeah, absolutely. So for for those who um, are interested in like active model serializers as well, right now 
there's um, so just I want to clear up one point of confusion for anybody who is listening to this at the right time, <laughs> which is now currently before zero one zero of active model serializers hits is that do not use the zero point nine branch because you're going to end up having a lot of heartache. Zero uh, point eight is basically what zero one zero is going to end up looking like. Um, they're just that's that's been the biggest piece of heartache for me right now is the implementation of JSON API that I'm interested in is uh, Rails API with active model serializers and um, it's it's been tough because I tried I thought immediately oh there's zero nine x now let's go ahead and upgrade to zero nine x and it's a completely different design broke everything I was like oh my god I roll back roll back roll back so I actually uh, steered clear of it for this reason that I, I saw the chatter around this point and um, active model serializers isn't the heaviest library but it's not the lightest either right. and I decided that until things seemed to shake out on that that I didn't want to like have the confusion of not understanding why things were breaking because I didn't understand active model serializers. So decided like I'd rather have the overhead of just sort of maintaining my own serializing code. And like, I I think like, I think I don't like that solution long-term, but I did like it short-term. Yeah. I think it makes sense short-term. Um, I, I do think that zero eight is, uh, stable enough that you can use it right now. And the conventions are going to change uh, again. But if you're already familiar with Emberland and changes that have been happening here, it's a, a very, very uh, dynamic process. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not, I'm not really worried about the pain of having to upgrade, um, especially because the, the amount of code, like the amount of application code that is written in any of these serializers is so small. Um, <laughs> That's true. That, the, the changes that I need to make are going to be very minimal. I mean, I could probably do it in like an hour and a half or something, honestly. So, I think that's right, especially if you've got reasonable test coverage on the views that are created. It's super, super easy. I'd yeah, be a absolutely. little concerned if I didn't because I, I wouldn't be super confident that there wouldn't be some sort of change that I, I didn't catch. But um, but in the app that I'm thinking about, the the view spec coverage is solid and I, I would be completely comfortable with ripping out the 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 way it's currently done and replacing it with the serializer like with something like um active model serializers or or I think that there's an alternative there's another alternative that seems to have some traction that I wonder if it'll get popular from a guy that's on the Ember Core team from up in New Hampshire I forget his name right now but anyway so w- whether it, it it was one or the other library you know it won't be that long before I f- I'll feel comfortable ripping it out for the reason you just said yeah exactly I mean I, I I'm still, it's still going to be a while, I think. I, I'm guessing, my best guess is maybe another year before we end up finally seeing a real leader in uh, that side of things. But it, it, that's not to say that you're not going to be productive in it. Again, I have an app in production currently that's using it. And there are all sorts of other solutions that you can go for too. I mean, our uh, client application from before was just a... Uh, or rather our server-side application from before, the API that we've written for our client, uh, um, client as in... Capital C. hired us, yes. (laughs) Check writer. I'm like, man, I'm confusing myself right now. What do I even mean by client anymore? Uh, So, yes, the check writers uh, had an iOS app. Um, So the API was interacting with an iOS client, and we used Grape for that. 
And so on the Ember side, we had to write um, some custom serialization to be able to deal with it in ways that, uh, you know, aren't handled by default in any of the uh, REST serializers um, that currently exist. I mean, like, we're, we were sending uh, fairly deeply nested objects in a lot of the JSON, and um, so it made sense for us to try and extract some of those out so we didn't have to go hit the server numerous times over again. Um, but I, I think regardless of of what choice do you make, you're going to end up being productive. So I'm not trying to scare anybody. <laughs> I think that the number one takeaway that I, that I've had in this area that I would sort of give as advice to other people is if you have a standard that you follow on the design of your API, things will go well. And it, it like, I, I do think those choices matter. Um, so I'm not saying that like, whatever the standard, who cares? As long as there's a standard, it's fine. I think that there are differences in, in, in the choice that you'd make, make and the sort of implications of it. But I think that the huge win, if you haven't gone with a standard approach previously is to go with a standard because right. you can start counting on all sorts of things everywhere that, um, when I think about old APIs that I wrote, I just couldn't count on. I wasn't consistent enough. Right. Um, and I, I'd say that's, uh, it, I think I have the exact same understanding at this point because the the Grape API that we wrote, I am not as satisfied with as the uh, Rails API AMS API that I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, I would much rather rewrite that entire uh, Grape app um, as a Rails API AMS app uh, just because I, I appreciate the conventions. and So nested resources to me now feel like a code smell like right. like almost always like i i actually can't even think of a situation right now where i'm okay with it um, right. it is are you there or or do you think that that there are situations where nesting the resource is the right call no i agree um i think the original design design decision was based around what the ios developer wanted and he didn't want to have to make a lot of round trips to the api and so we said okay well you know we'll go ahead and send you um, as much uh, JSON as you you can handle <laughs> just up front. Um, and I think that was the wrong decision in retrospect. Um, we, uh, we were very, we were on a very tight deadline um, at the same time. So we also kind of worked with the understanding that um, he was sort of building with like a parse backend previously. And um, we had to come in to like hit their launch date in time by, not having this guy do everything. I mean, he was like uh, absolute unicorn of like product development, design, iOS, <laughs> server side. And I'm like, that, wow, I'm surprised that you've managed to get any of this done. <laughs> so we we finally just said, okay, you know, I, I think this is because the, the client side is written the way that it is. I'm not going to make you do a, a ton of round trips to get all this data. Uh, we just ended up going with the nested resource model, but I, I wouldn't do it again. Uh, definitely not. Um, I actually, in some cases, I really like the idea of uh, links as well. Um, Me too. So I've, I've implemented that in a couple of instances to try and get some performance benefits uh, because you can do a lot of interesting caching around uh, links because... You know, I think in most applications, you have a lot of data that is very static, um, very non-changing, uh, but it's mixed up with a lot of data that's fairly dynamic. Um, so, you know, in, to, to make that a little bit crunchier and crispier, the, the example that I've got 
in particular is uh, these skills that you learn on Cook Academy, right? So it may be honing your knife for uh, julienning carrots or whatever the case may be. Um, and most of the information around those skills is static, but there is dynamic information associated with that user. So what's that user's skill level, right? Um, and I want to be able to cache all of the static stuff, but not have to cache the dynamic stuff because that would be very bad um, for obvious reasons. Right. And the, I mean, there's even more static stuff, like, for example, the recipes. The majority of that stuff is not going to change um, uh, unless, you know, like it is the, the, the content that I've written um, and filmed and whatever. And so that's, that's just up there. That's going to be there for quite a long time. Maybe I might go in and change a, a step or ingredient or something like that. But um, I think the, the ability to um, handle all of these, like, things is uh, fairly independent um, by using these links is a really fantastic strategy for uh, going after caching. Um, so. Yeah, I agree. I mean, once the, once things are, um, once you've sort of unnested the resource and deal with everything at the top level, a lot of that comes for free almost. Right. Right. right because the caching on the server side is going to come for free, you know, if, if nothing's changed and, and you're just rendering back the same thing, then everything gets easier. Like I think, I think one reason that it it took me a little bit to figure out how true that was is is how in you know, if you've written a lot of Ruby code, you're used to things being um, uh, synchronous, right? Just in a straight line, right? And in JavaScript and Ember, it's just not that way. So the the like the mental model I had of the cost of multiple calls was higher than it than it actually is. <laughs> right, absolutely. Because so many of them are happening at the same time, and in in Ruby, I mean, of course, I you know you could you could um, spawn some threads and run them um, concurrently since it's mostly I/O, but you just don't as default do that. So I think like when I'm calculating what the performance characteristics would be of a given call, in my Ruby experience tends to betray me when I'm thinking about <laughs> things in JavaScript. Yeah, I agree. I had the same. Uh the same hurdle to overcome with this. So I eventually overcame it just by measuring. Um, so, you know, obviously if you are trying to get performance benefits out of something and you're not measuring and you're just cargo culting, that's not the appropriate way to go about it. Um, but, you know, for my case, I could look at it and say, wow, I'm seeing a very clear performance bump here. And I would not have expected that coming from the the Ruby world and doing all these things in parallel. That would have been much more difficult. Um, right. So, so what? Yeah. Let's get back to sort of where we started, which is what the arguments are for and against. We've we've been making. I think we have not done a good job making the case against splitting. And <laughs> yet, if I was to pull up Twitter and like this week and and go through all of the tweets related to web development like a not small percentage would inc would include some snark about uh you know what people would call single paged applications if they're being snarky uh, right. and I, I don't even know how that got pejorative like, like there's nothing obviously <laughs> pejorative about the phrase single page applications but you never see someone say it if they <laughs> aren't being snarky <laughs> right so, absolutely so what's up with it like what am i missing because i feel like i'm like i don't really have uh uh, a horse in the race other than like, you know, what I care about for the applications. And I don't understand why there are a number of smart people whose 
whose judgment I generally think is reasonably good about programming are, are so snarky about single page applications. Like what, what's your theory about like, like what's the most generous explanation like of the, the reason they have to, to feel like the approach that we are both saying is right is wrong. Sure. Well, I, I think let's back up for a moment and uh, make a distinction between what we were originally saying is uh, so wh why should you split or should you always split a client side and a uh, server side application? And I, I'd say that that question is actually best prefaced by if you are doing a client side single page application, you should always split it. However, um, I do think that there are some reasons not to build an Ember app in the first place where you can stick with traditional Rails. Uh, I'd say if you're on a deadline uh, and you really need to get something out, you know, you have this big C client that is writing you a check, I would not learn it uh, just to meet that deadline. Um, it's going to be a very difficult learning curve for you to get up to. Um, I would say you should try and build some sort of side project, not like a to-do app, but right. something you know realistic, something that is going to uh, be similar to what a um, you know client's application might be or your employer's application might be. Um, I and I, I can speak from experience on something like this too because I learned iOS on a deadline. Um, we had a client that we essentially had to treat their. Um, their iOS app as a rescue project. We were building all their Rails backend. They had hired a company that took uh, five months or so to build this thing and come out with just this broken, janky app. And it was for it was an e-commerce related application too, and like this can't work. I think at one point we found that they were firing like six hundred simultaneous purchase requests a minute in the app, and they could never debug why that was the case. I'm like, this is like begging for a race condition that I don't want to have to ever deal with. Um, just and, add, just add sidekick to the project. You'll find the race condition about, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in about one minute. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that, and I I think that's an instructive example because iOS is. Um, it is a client. Uh, it's got very similar uh, conventions, and yet um, I think that was easier for me to learn than it was for me to pick up Ember the first time around. Um, however, so, so qu quick comment on this, which I think sure. is, I think is interesting. So it's interesting your answer. Like if you say that there's often the tweet or the comment, which is like, "You should not build single page applications." I think it's super interesting that you're pointing out that all, that you agree with that sentence sometimes, but your emphasis is on the you, not the single page application. Like in other words, like in certain contexts, which is a combination of like project requirement and individual skill level at the time, there are certain contexts where it's an awful call to right, learn. Absolutely. But which I, may not mean that doesn't mean that it's the wrong call for the project just for you and the project. It's the wrong call right now. Right. Right, I totally absolutely. agree with that point of view. I think it's a very mature sort of way to look at it that I I am it's a hundred percent consistent with my experience. I think there's another uh good um place not to use it, which is uh I would never use it in a site that is always going to be static. I I just there, I don't see any reason for doing it. No matter how productive I am, no matter how beautiful the architecture is, if a site is static, I've got two main things to overcome. One is I'm going to be sending JavaScript down the wire for somebody to even be able to render this application, um, which, you know, if it's a blog, um, 
I, there's no reason for me to be, even if it's a half a second, um, to be adding on that much extra time for somebody to come in and get out. They're going to, I mean, I've got that person for maybe two minutes anyways. Um, we're not going to be there doing long running, uh, promise related things. It's, <laughs> there's no reason for it. Um, and the other main reason is SEO. Um, why would I want to have to deal with all the overhead of SEO on a like mostly static Ember app? Um, it's just so much work and maybe that situation will change. Maybe eventually Google bot is so good at just throwing phantom JS at anything that it runs into that, um, you know, it's, it's not a problem, but it's a problem currently. So as of right now, if you're building a blog, do not build an Ember blog. I just, I can't see why you would do that. Yeah. I think that the server side rendering stuff that Tom and Yehuda are working on is really good news for this topic. I right. think, right. Cause it, I, I would be, I would be very surprised that if in 18 months, this wasn't dated, this comment, because right. I just, I, I can't imagine that with the percentage of, of the web now that is a JavaScript application, it's just hard to imagine that that, um, like like the competitive advantages for Google to or name your search engine to be able to see those as the same as the rest of the web are too big, and they have too much money and too many smart people to not solve it. I just don't buy. Absolutely, it. yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and let's face it, it's not unsolvable either. I currently have a right. perfectly crawlable site, um, but it just. There, there is enough overhead currently that I would still say to avoid it. Yeah, it didn't come um, for free. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I, I empathize with um, people who are uh, anti-single-page apps because I think everybody likes to see the brand-new thing as now the only way of doing something. Um, and I, that's just not the, the right response. Um, I, I do think that you need to temper um, the the app or the, the, the choice of programming that you're going to do with what the end result is going to be. And not everything is the right choice for it. Um, but <laughs> if you have even a modicum of interactivity in your app, then I don't see any reason why you shouldn't use it. Um, because you're going to end up but the amount of effort that you spend writing and maintaining jQuery spaghetti code just to do data binding, for example, that's you're getting for free in Ember. I mean, you've got to set up event listeners. You're all connected to the DOM. Um, all the different methods that you're going to have to write to be able to get that to work is just ridiculous. And then on top of that, I get so many nice things for free in Ember that I would never be able to get elsewhere. So one nice example um, actually pointing out skills again in the Cook Academy app. I've got this little skill progress indicator, which is uh, using D3JS to render it as an SVG, um, which means like later on, if I wanted to end up having a nice little like, you know, filling up the progress bar, uh, bouncy effect or something, I could do that, no problem. Um, but that's all built as an Ember component. And this component, um, I literally have like two levers on it, which is the radius of the skill progress indicator. So it's a little circle that fills up to 100%, and then a color. Um, so if you look at the um, the recipes index page, 
there are on any one of those individual recipes uh, a little set of, of icons next to their skills. That's the exact same component that renders it 70 pixels by 70 pixels and has a green um, progress bar on the, the recipe page itself or the skill page. Um, and it's, it's amazing to me that I can do that. Uh, maybe it's not mind-blowing to somebody else, but it is so easy. And I think I... I literally just remember it as, uh, or render it um, as like skill dash progress uh, color, and then pass in a hex value, and then radius, and pass in an integer, and that's it. Um, and the number of wins like that that you experience once you're sort of um, in the flow in Ember is so high, like so oh, yeah. many. Um, well, so so to tell my own little personal version of your story, I, the the part that I the advice that you gave that I would like underline seven times is that. Do not learn Ember on something that's critical because it is hard. Oh, oh no. Where is this going? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, because I got this advice and I did the little to-do app on the side. And I thought at first, um, you know, hey, I, I, I get it. I get Ember. Okay. Well, that's like I did not get Ember. I, I had a basic understanding of some things. Um, but I really have learned Ember and I mean, I still wouldn't consider myself, um, an expert. Like when I think about my proficiency in rails where I really don't have to even think about like how to do things that often, you just sort of do them compared to Ember. It's not even close yet, but, but the way that I got okay at Ember was trying to build an app that wasn't small for like from scratch, totally greenfield. And oh my goodness, is that first three weeks hard? <laughs> like I felt, I haven't felt that dumb about something in a long time. Like, I, I actually don't even, I don't know what I could come up with. Like, maybe when I learned R at first, I felt that stupid about something. <laughs> right. Right, because R is super foreign when you first get used to it, uh, or when you're first introduced to it. And I felt a little bit like that with Ember. But um, uh, like you said, if, if you know, you, you think because you hear arguments like the ones we're making that ember is the right call or at least this sort of whether it's ember or not ember this kind of architecture is the right decision for an app but you aren't yet competent in ember uh you will regret you know making that call if it's not something you've got control of because right. uh you just you know the the learning curve is going to be higher than you think you are because you're smart and you think you're all <laughs> all knowing and you're not <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be learned a rough lesson in the beginning right. uh, of the project Absolutely. And I, I mean, um, to be fair, I think this this problem would be exactly the same for somebody learning Rails for the first time um, if you've come from elsewhere. So, you know, I knew a guy uh, who yeah, I think was, that's the, accurate. He was the CTO of a startup, um, you know, a consultant dropped in to help on their Rails app. And he'd never used Rails before this, but he was like, oh, well, I mean, we're a startup, so... Uh, and I hear other people are really productive in it, so we're going to be really productive in it. And I go in there, and everything, absolutely everything, is in their home controller. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, like, the entire application. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, like, serious... Uh, uh, like, they were dealing with reams of data um, and trying to process all of it, and actually, like, working with R in some of that Rails code. So, like, oh, the God. Rails was executing R... I'm like, oh my god, I don't, I don't understand what I'm looking at. Like my eyes were bleeding everywhere. It was maybe like a seven thousand line uh, controller, um, but that's the exact same thing. I mean, like he 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 felt like he had that basic understanding of how Rails worked, and you know he was getting stuff done in it. But 
man, like it was it was going to be the exact same learning curve as somebody trying to figure out the the Ember conventions. The nice thing about it, though, is that unlike using uh, Backbone or something like that, just to pick on Backbone, um, once you learn the convention, then you've got it. You know, there's nothing else to learn at that point. Now right. it's just uh, you know, what are the specifics of this API? What is you know, where's the nice Ember computed shorthand for this thing? Um, and unfortunately, in any other uh, in in an application that emphasizes configuration over convention, you're going to have to be ha- dealing with that same learning curve constantly. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm always concerned from the perspective of dealing with clients who need to hire people on after we're done and maintain the project. Whoa, that learning curve is going to be ridiculous. You know, I have to teach these people now how to use this application, which is completely different from anything else that they've ever done. Right. Um, and you don't get that same problem with Ember. Um, no, it'd, once be, you, it'd be hard in some ways, I think, to write something that once you understand Ember, you wouldn't understand. I mean, I'm sure right. someone could do it. I'm not. This isn't. A, <laughs> this isn't a challenge. But I'm saying, like in general, compared to like an Angular heavy app, where I think um, the the amount of context that's required that's above and beyond the framework is high. I think the amount of context required above and beyond the framework for Ember is is sort of Rails like. Like Rails, if you know, I mean, you know, and we've all seen Rails apps that are nearly impossible to understand. But but generally speaking. You know, if people follow the conventions and are experienced Rails programmers, are going to make things that are that are uh, organized in a sensible way. And I, yeah, I totally agree that Ember's the same way. Yeah. All right, we we need to take a quick break here for me to read our sponsor. All right. Okay. Okay. So uh, today's episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip's a free continuous delivery service that's really simple to use. They offer 100 builds per month for five private projects for free. The whole product also has a big focus on usability, uh, and uh, that comes through in the whole product. They actually just uh, released a new design for the whole product that I think really tightened this up further, and it was already pretty good. Uh, You can set up continuous integration in a few easy steps, and your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for multiple languages and test frameworks. You can easily integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket for code hosting and then deploy to cloud services or your own servers. Start out with their free plan. Setup only takes about three minutes. You can find CodeShip on CodeShip.com slash 5x5Ruby and use the offer code 5x5Ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. You can also check out their blog at blog.codeship.com to get updates. I use CodeShip for both my Rails projects and my uh, Ember projects, and uh, it's uh, a totally integral part of my my own um, development workflow, and I highly recommend them. So thanks again to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast. All right. So uh, I think we're on a roll. I think this has been a very good conversation about this. I want to talk for the last sort of bit about option value related to everything we just said, which is because I think it's amazing. We didn't talk about it given that I think it's maybe the biggest reason to go with the architecture that, that I think we both advocated, which is like, if you go your with a separate server application from your client, I agree with your point that it's easier to reason about both of them in their own sort of silos. But the amazing part to me is all of the upside that exists if your server is just a server. 
Like, so many things become possible that wouldn't be possible if it was all mangled up. Like, right. you know, if you're in like the, I tend to be in the, what people would consider like the enterprise business to business world, right? And your customers then often want to integrate with you, right? For, for, but not for everything, maybe for like a component of, of their workflow with you, right? Like something invoicing or payment related or status related or whatever. And, uh, when you architect, uh, an application in the way that you laid out where you have the server and then initially for your application, you build it as a web client. That's a separate project. Then adding on integrations with customers or an iOS app or your own sort of special purpose, just one part of the app app is like trivial, right? You know, it, it's completely free. That's That's absolutely true. I mean, that's, um, we look at it from, so I'm coming from the consumer bent. And of course, you know, every client in the world is like, once we have this, where this is iOS app or a web app or whatever, we're also going to have an iOS app and we're going to have an Android app. And I'm like, awesome. We've already built it out so that that's going to be no problem whatsoever. It's just another client. It's just another client. Yeah. And that, that, that benefit is so large. I think that this is in the end why... I don't think that this conversation is that complicated unless you're like a, a completely static SEO is king, a short timeline, short budget, don't want the overhead, right. uh, you know, a case, which you, I think you rightly sort of isolated as a case where maybe you shouldn't go this way, but man, for everything else, like walking away from that option value of being able to add on the iOS app or the Android app or your uh, desktop client or your client integration or your, you know, whatever else, man, that's expensive. That's an expensive decision. Um, because you know, it's hard to retrofit that. Right. At least well, you know, you know. I, I agree completely. Um, I think making it so that everything is a service, um, just makes sense. You know, I think we're continuing to move towards more of a, uh, service oriented architecture bent, and really the client is a service that interacts with your server over HTTP. That's it. Um, so it, it, I can't see um, a really valid reason not to go down that route. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a very limited um, uh, point of view, but I, I love it. I love working that way. Um, it makes things so easy for me. Um, it is fantastic to be as like right now we are a three person team and we are insanely productive dealing with like building this Ember app, maintaining the rails API and, uh, having the rails API work with this iOS client. Um, it's, so, it's amazing. Do you remember the moment where, where you kind of had an inkling that you would feel this way? Cause I actually, I actually think I do remember if I'm interested in you, did you have like an aha where you're like, Oh man, I wonder if there's something to this. Um, so I actually, the first version of cook Academy was a, um, it had Ember rails. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I've gone the other route where I had Ember thrown into a rails project. Um, and man, it was just, it was tons of pain. Um, dealing with that. Um, I, I've had, and, and just seeing the, like the first benefits of it acting as a client were 
so eye-opening to me. It's it's hard to it's hard to describe it without doing it yourself. You know, it's it's very um, it's very difficult to uh, explain to somebody that that aha moment. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember precisely where it happened, but you know, it's one of those things where once it's happened, it's hard to see the world any other way. Yeah. Um, so I had I I remember the moment where th- now this wasn't my own personal experience, but I remember the comment that someone made that made me go, hmm, I wonder if I'm, I wonder if my own like lousy JavaScript skills and, and, uh, you know, limited experience is causing me to not see something. And and it was, it was either Tom Dale or Yehuda Katz because they were having a conversation with each other and a third person. So I don't remember who said it, but one of them said, I just can't see how an application that's not architected this way won't be at a almost impossibly difficult competitive advantage within a few years. Right. And those guys are super smart and like, don't, I mean, maybe Tom sort of pokes people sometimes with comments, but Yehuda doesn't. And, and Tom doesn't like in that way, at least. And they, one of them said it, I think it may have been Yehuda. And I said, you know, like I, I don't want to remember back in a few years to that moment and say, Oh geez, I heard a guy that I respect as one of the smartest guys in the world say that. <laughs> and I actually paid attention and heard it and said, eh, I'm not going to find out because I'm bad at JavaScript and I don't want to get better because I like Ruby. Like that's just, I don't want that moment. I'm going to like regret it. I'm going right. to, I'm going to hate myself for not doing it. Um, the, the analogy that I'd use for what you said, um, about, how it's, it's hard to sort of see the world. Um, like once you've seen how this works, it's hard to unsee it. It's sort of like, remember in Seinfeld when Elaine danced and it was very like jerky, it was like almost (laughs) impossibly comedically jerky. Like so funny. That's what, um, server rendered apps look like to me now. Right. Like, which is like, they're not fluid. They're like waiting like she did for like the beat, which would be like the request. And then they're like rendering some response, which would be like some like jerky arm motion to the beat. <laughs> and then sort of staying in that spot, sort of robot and maybe like moving a tiny bit, which would be like in my bad analogy here, like the, the jQuery uh, integrations and then waiting for the other big response and then jerking another, another movement. And then you look at, an app that's uh ember and it's fluid like it like looks like dancing like when when uh an event happens whatever it is not just you know uh not just sort of the events we think about in restful server rendered applications but like any browser event you just see the app move with it and i'm like oh right right that's what that's like dancing things are moving fluidly to the actions right absolutely and I'm not sure if that's a good analogy or not, because I haven't thought about it before or not, but that's how it feels to me, at least. Well, I mean, what um, I listened to your uh, interview with Trek, and I think the one thing that you pointed out that I, I'm absolutely going to use, I'm going to steal it and describe it to other people this way, is uh, why, you know, to deal with a um, client-side interaction, like clicking something, should I be talking to a server in Virginia? It makes no sense. It doesn't. really doesn't. <laughs> well, you know, I had, so my, my wife is not technical at all. And, um, 
but I, that doesn't stop me from having this conversation at dinner, which shows my, that, <laughs> that my, my, you know, EQ marriage skills may be suspect also, but, but you know, the other night I was having this conversation at dinner where, uh, she was asking me like why I was putting myself through the pain of, of getting good at Ember since I you know, seemed to be doing fine without being good at Ember previously. And now like my hair is going gray and you know, I, <laughs> I'm like, you know, swear at myself all day long. And I, I actually gave the same story to her about like, well, here's what the compute, like here's how the computer is talking to the server in case one. And here is how it's talking to the server in case two. And the one case I like, you know, show the, just a little bit of JSON, the rest happens on the computer. And the other one, I, you know, describe what happens on the server. And she's like, Oh, well, why would, why would you not use the computer to do all that stuff? Like, right. and like, she's really not technical. So like, it, it, this is saying something that it seems like it, it was funny to her that there would be a, like a fast computer and that that doesn't do most of the work. Right. Absolutely. I, so, you know, to, to, uh, try and empathize a little bit more, with those people who are still anti-JavaScript. Um, I, I still understand, oh, I don't really understand, but I'm, I'm trying to understand uh, <laughs> the, the issue that they have. And I, I see this come up all the time if you're a, you know, a big reader of Hacker News, um, constantly people saying like, oh, you know, well, I've got JavaScript disabled. Um, and that's a very uh, unique use case. Um, I know I don't think I know anybody who is not a software developer that is actively going and disabling JavaScript. Yeah, zero, um, pe zero people. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of somebody who's doing that. And I understand the reasons why they're doing it. They are fed up with um, people invading their privacy and using JavaScript to track everything that they're doing. And, you know, I get it. Like, I, I understand um, but that is not what the majority of the world is like. And um, disabling JavaScript and having relying on developers to have uh, these nice fallbacks to HTML only um, is a very outdated concept to me. Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of silly, I think, even. It is, it is. I think, you know, if if that's the if that's your response to these issues. Um, and I mean, these are big issues too that we're talking about. Don't get me wrong; these are issues of um, like serious privacy invasion uh, on people. And I think that there is a, a place to talk about those things. But if your um, civic reaction to those things is to disable JavaScript, and that is your like big uh, um, instance of civil disobedience. There is something wrong with the way that you're behaving. Right. Well, because <laughs> the, to... the boogeyman is the internet and that sort of f f fear. Like, like if you had those fears, which I, like you said, are perf perfectly reasonable to have, JavaScript's not the boogeyman, it's the internet. Right. And I think, you know, like you just said, like everyone's got to look on balance. Hey, is the benefit of the internet greater than the cost of the internet? And the cost of the internet is not small. I mean, you can have, you know, someone, someone can so not to get on a tangent, but you know, people get weirded out about drones and like the possibility of a drone inflicting violence on someone remotely because, you know, you've separated the operator from the action. And then, you know, whereas it used to be, you'd have to be willing to risk your own life. Now you don't have to be you know, willing to risk your own life to inflict damage on someone else. 
Like, I find it very interesting that people can see that so clearly when the internet is like a hundred million times a bigger problem of the same sort, right? right? Which is like, you can do anything remotely and you're completely anonymous if you're, you know, at least able to, to, uh, technically get it done. And back to your point about sort of, if you're civic, like, I think it's reasonable to say, therefore I, like, I can imagine someone at least saying, therefore, I am going to disconnect from the internet because I think right. that the invasion is too much. It's not worth the benefits. But if, like, that's the only answer that I think is reasonable to that concern. Like, therefore, I'm going to shut off JavaScript is just stupid. It just doesn't right. actually solve the problem in it. it. It's sort of said as if it's obviously, uh, what's the word for this sort of thing? It's stated as if it obviously makes sense. And I think it obviously doesn't make sense. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm with you. Right. I mean, again, I empathize. So if you're out there and you're like, well, I just, I just disable JavaScript all the time and, uh, you know, I fundamentally believe that's what I need to do. I empathize with the situation. I really do. Um, but, you know, I don't think that that is uh, a valid reason to um, give users a poor experience um, because the majority of people out there are relatively fine with how the internet works, um, for better or worse, and they want to experience the web in a better way. And I say, give that to them. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to be spending time trying to build for IE6 um, just to like satisfy the 0.001% of people that are ready to turn off JavaScript. Um, it's just yeah. not going to happen. I so. think we're at a fun, I mean, the, the combination of everyone having a computer with them times the computer being fast means that you know, JavaScript just has so much upside that even if I really don't like writing it, because I really, like, I can, I decided for myself that I was going to start, like, writing it. <laughs> and that actually has, like, helped. Like, I just said, I, I'm going to like it. Like, I, I don't, I don't care if my actual reaction is not to like it at first. I'm, I'm just going to like it somehow. And, uh, you know, because the upside's too big, you know? Right. So. Yeah, yeah I, I honestly like I got over that hump pretty quickly. I don't care if I don't like it. Um, I mean, I yeah, like building I'm, stuff. So <laughs> I'm there. I care about building stuff infinitely more than I care about like, you know, the elegance of my code. I just do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, awesome. So uh, we're at an hour. Uh, I've got to go to my my in-laws uh, holiday party, which I'm uh, dressed in my my holiday uniform for a quick aside. Do you wear, do you have a holiday uniform? So if you, if you're going to have like a, like a holiday party or a, a, or a birthday party for your you know, family member, do you like have an, like a type of outfit that you think is the appropriate thing to wear? Or are you wearing the same thing you're wearing every other day of your life? Uh, I have an outfit. Um, I think previously I would not have had one, but my wife has forced me to have one. So, um, I do have one at this point that is my, my uniform. Absolutely. <laughs> I had the most dad moment of my life a couple weeks ago related to this topic. So we were, where were we? Oh, it was Thanksgiving. So it was a month ago. So we were in New York and, uh, I had the, uh, so I've got a few kids and, uh, everyone was getting ready for Thanksgiving. And I said, okay, you, you know, we brought clothes that were like nice for them to wear on this day and gave it to him. And my 11 uh, year old started to like, give me some attitude about like, well, I don't want to wear this. And I said, this family wears a holiday uniform. And I didn't, I was not even being like, I wasn't intentionally being funny at least. And I, I he's like, what? And I said, yeah, we wear a holiday uniform. Look, I have a watch on, I don't wear a watch, but it's a holiday go get dressed. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I've, I've arrived as a dad. Cause 
<laughs> can say that without any any you know, any sense of irony or anything. It is no. just it is true. That is that is the way that we do things now in this family. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I meant it. I meant we wear a uniform. <laughs> so get dressed. Anyways, I've uh, I love the conversation. I think it was uh, I think it was great. And uh, why don't you take a couple of minutes and promote uh, promote your app a little bit more and tell people how they can reach you on the internet. Uh, sure, absolutely. So my app that I've launched is Cook Academy. We currently only have about three recipes right now, but I'm adding anywhere between 10 to 15 a week. So if you're one of those people wow. that, like me, um, or not a week, sorry, a month. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, man, I was like, woo, on a roll. Um, so we're, we're filming everything ourselves. Um, so this is brand new to me. I've only dealt with like user-generated content apps before, and... It is definitely a learning experience, um, but the the reaction that I've gotten from people so far is amazing. Um, I've done a little bit of user testing here and there, and you know, random uh, you know people like a forty three year old guy in Philadelphia was like, "This seems like one of those gems that I'd find on lifehacker dot com," and I'm like, "Okay, that's amazing. I've never had a response like that to an app." Um, that was a compliment, right? Like people are weird about like Lifehacker, but I think that, that oh, was yeah. a good thing. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a compliment. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he. Uh, I, I think the the reaction has been great. I, I had a guy who um, that we tested it on. He's a like biomedical engineer, really smart guy, but had not bought groceries for eight months. The last time that he tried to cook, he told me that he burned water, and he. <laughs> He used this app to make uh, this pan-sauteed chicken breast, and it was probably the most perfect piece of chicken that I've had in five years. Um, and you know, he was like, "I've a- able to generalize my skills beyond this thing. I know that I can go and uh, reproduce this anytime if I want to." Um, so I I feel like I'm onto something with it. Please, if you have the opportunity, check it out. Give me feedback. Um, and I will give you personal help because uh, I'm really passionate right now about trying to teach people how to cook. Um, so, you know, my, let me know what you think. My wife is a uh, my wife is a very good cook, and I think this is up her alley. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to get her to use it. Yeah, please, and uh, let me know what she thinks of it. Um, I really am like I know that uh, there, it's kind of like the startup thing to do to be overly helpful, um, but. Like, I will get on the phone and help people out. I will, like, refer questions to the chef who's my co-founder. Um, like, I, I, seriously, anybody who, who has any questions at all, just let me know. I'm, I'm here to help. Have you read the book Ratio? Yes, yes. And that is... Is, is that, like, an inspiration at all? Because it sort of feels like it could be from the way that I saw you sort of have, like, the building blocks of of cooking and, and these sort of fundamentals that you could, like, you know, configure into... To, recipes. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything, um, the, the way that everything is arranged is sort of like puzzle pieces. Um, right. And so you could start at basically any point um, because my hypothesis is that nobody wants to sit there for hours chopping vegetables just to try and learn how to wheel a knife. You know, it's not going to happen. Um, so for the most part, you're interested in making something, um, trying to eat something delicious. And so the, the idea is that as you go through these recipes, um, there's going to be a little bit more upfront cost than you're associated uh, with just finding a recipe online and making it, but you're learning skills in the course of what you're doing. Um, and so 
I think teaching people uh, flavors of things, teaching people that the exact amount um, that's listed in a recipe is not um, precisely accurate. You know, like you can you can get away with a lot of different things, but understanding the the balance of things, understanding the ratios of what you need to be doing, um, is a very useful skill. And I feel like people are picking up on it. Um, I mean, even after one recipe, which is amazing. So, yeah, definitely that's one inspiration. I've got plenty of others. Um, it, it's nice that there's kind of a a whole world of work that's been done around this that. Uh, I can stand on the shoulders of giants, and it's not as difficult for me. When did it launch? Uh, so we launched. Um, you know, launch is such a funny word. Uh, I, I, I totally get this. <laughs> you know, I'd say it's it's been uh, live and usable for uh, maybe like three or four weeks now. Oh, wow. um, okay. By the middle of January, I'll have about twenty five recipes up there. Um, and then again, we're adding anywhere between like 10 and 20 recipes a month right now. Um, and the nice thing about it actually is that the, the, uh, that jigsaw puzzle nature of all of the skill sets within there, um, means that every time that we add, uh, new skills that we're doing, um, the number of recipes that we do is, uh, increasing exponentially. Um, so, you could, for example, we've got a margarita pizza that's coming. Well, once we have uh, this like clean and dry and then sliced mushroom skill set, we can add that into a separate recipe that's about mushroom pizza. Um, right. And, you know, that's that's really fantastic to see uh, come to life. Um, so, you know, if, if you're interested in, in cooking, like, please uh, be aware that there is a lot coming. Um, and, you know, I'm... It's it's gonna in the next six months it's going to be a completely different thing than what it is currently. So that's awesome. Well, I love the name. I think it's uh, it feels like you didn't overdo any of the features from from the look that I took at it, which felt so nice because you know you can tell that it's a relatively young app, but it doesn't feel like you tried to throw the kitchen sink part in the <laughs> part in the <laughs> double meaning here, uh, like throw the kitchen sink in, and therefore <laughs> it, it feels like it just what you know isn't ready. It feels appropriately featured for where it is in its lifespan. And I like that. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm a graduate of Amy Hoy's 30 by 500. So, uh, everything in that app was, uh, based around like the bare minimum feature set that I needed to get people to where they need to go. Um, all thanks to Amy. So cool. All right. Uh, what if someone wants to connect with you personally on Twitter? Uh, I am at Josh Smith, which, uh, everybody, gets confused and thinks that I am a uh, basketball player, which I am not. Are you a basketball fan? Uh, not really even. So I just have to respond to people and be like, yeah, you know, I really do need to work on my jumper this year. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty poor. <laughs> people are like, whoa, dude, you're just some white guy. What the heck? <laughs> All right. So at Josh Smith, one, one word, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Oh, and by the way, um, just for those people out there, uh, the the CodeShip sponsorship, I pay CodeShip, so I have no affiliation with them whatsoever other than being a happy user, but um, I am fantastically happy with them. I use CodeShip for both the uh, Rails um, app and the Ember app, um, and I have done numerous like CI uh, server, uh, or used numerous CI servers previously, so... Um, they are by far the best that I've ever used. It's so, really great, um, isn't it? 
Uh, it like really I, is. <laughs> I think so. Okay, so I've got one a one minute story to end the podcast. So I've told it before, but I I read this sponsorship like a handful of times before I had used them, and you know I'm honest about it. Sometimes I've used the sponsor, sometimes I haven't. And um, I think it was the fourth week that I read it. I'm like, you know, what am I doing? I gotta, I've gotta like, I've gotta make, <laughs> I've gotta make time because I was using a, a different um, CI solution at the time. I've gotta make time and and try this out on one of my apps. And, uh, and then I said, oh man, it's true. Like all, like what I've been reading is accurate. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and now I'm, yeah, I'm a paying customer. I think they're great. Really great. Yeah. They're really fantastic. And the, the UI changes that came, um, like I, I just tweeted at them and was like, this is amazing. Like I, I've been waiting for this and it looks great. And they're like, oh, well this is only a fraction of what we're doing right now. I'm like, that's incredible. So yeah, please use them. Uh, if you have not used them yet. They are shooting for the moon. It's funny when you see a company that clearly thinks they're on it. Like, like, like they think that they've got, like, like they're in the right position in the right space with the right team, and they're, they are pouring it all on because you know that from the development side, the marketing side, I think they are they are swinging for the fences, and that's you know whether it. I hope it works out for them, but whether it does or it doesn't, it's fun to see someone take a big swing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I wish I were a venture capitalist just so that I could pour a ton of money into them, <laughs> frankly, because I know I'd make it back in spades. Yeah. Um, so. All right. Well, for those that want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm uh, barely known. Thanks.